Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today, a war is a brewing. And we're talking about the struggle inside the Democratic Party to wrest control of the primary calendar back from Iowa and New Hampshire. It's possible that as soon as 2024, Iowa and New Hampshire might not get to vote first in primaries and caucuses. It's not as though the earth would stop spinning and the United States would somehow uh, fall into ruin if Iowa no longer was the first state where we voted. You don't think it would trigger the Yellowstone supervolcano is what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think so. But there will be consequences. Right, there will be ripple effects. Charlie Matessian Esquire is our senior politics editor. And I'm Scott Bland. Welcome to Nerdcast. You know, we've had uh, several generations of politicians and journalists that have no idea how we ended up with this cockamamie harebrained system. So let's dive into said cockamamie harebrained scheme. Ever since 1972, the Iowa caucuses have been the first electoral test on the road to party presidential nominations. Some people argue Iowa is the most important step. Fun fact, listeners. Joe Biden is one of only two presidents since 1972 not to have won either Iowa or New Hampshire in the primaries. Bill Clinton is the other, but his race was weird for a lot of different reasons. How the heck did this all start in the first place? Lots of people don't really know. It's one of the biggest drawbacks is that no one can understand it, but... But you, you are about to find out. I'll explain it in two minutes. You can thank me later. It all started with the 1968 Democratic Convention. It was a very tumultuous time. Here's the context. The Vietnam War had been raging for years. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy were assassinated that spring. And President Lyndon Johnson had withdrawn from the presidential race in March. A month later, Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, jumped into the race. And his support of Johnson, especially concerning the Vietnam War, really upset anti-war protesters and that whole wing of the Democratic Party. So here's what happened. In the middle of all this, Democratic political leaders are filing into the convention hall, while at the same time, protesters are brutally clashing with police right outside. Unrestrained and indiscriminate police violence. The whole nation saw it live on TV. And Hubert Humphrey won the Democratic nomination, even though he didn't win a single primary. And this is a huge problem for the party. There's this enormous imbalance between public opinion and political movements and the political process. So the solution? Democratic Party leaders formed a commission. Their goal was to improve the nomination process so that voters would have a direct, tangible say in who would be their nominee for president and so that it wouldn't seem like politicians were making these decisions behind closed doors. The commission also made a 30-day rule that the party had to give notice before hosting primaries or caucuses to encourage people to show up. So Iowa already had a complicated nominating process. Add in the 30-day notice, and it meant the state needed an even earlier slot on the voting calendar, making them first. No one really paid much attention to the caucus shift in Iowa until... 
Jimmy Carter? Jimmy who? I heard he was a, a, a peanut farmer. I don't know who he is. Jimmy Carter drew a bunch of attention there when he ran for president. His 1976 campaign was small and didn't have the funds to compete in bigger state primaries, so they put in huge effort where they could make the most effort. Little old Iowa. And in the end, Carter won the Democratic presidential nomination. His victory yesterday was of great symbolic importance. There were those today who were using the words front-runner to describe Carter. And as we know, from there, the presidency. And ever since then, Iowa has remained a crucial testing ground for nearly every presidential candidate, but particularly the longer-shot ones. And now, all that might change. Even though it feels to me like about, oh, four, five, six hundred years ago, around this time last year, the Iowa caucus was turning into a total and complete nightmare. She's just sort of staring at her phone and saying, oh, you know, I am a, I'm a caucus chair tonight, but I can't get this app on my phone to work. Politico White House correspondent Natasha Karecki was a part of the action. She was actually one of the first people reporting the story of the beginning of what might be the end for Iowa. It's pretty clear, even initially, like just doing a, a quick round of calls that there's something going on here. So I, I sent a text message. Um, this is a February 3rd, 2020, caucus morning. Time? 10.54 a.m. I send, hey there, hearing anecdotally from a couple of caucus chairs, uh, their apps aren't working or they can't figure them out. How big of an issue is this so far today? And I'm told, oh, this is not a big issue. Spoiler alert, it was a big issue. Little did we all know what a big issue this would turn out to be. Natasha and Charlie are helping me make sense of this war, the arguments on both sides, and how this might have a huge impact on, you know, our entire democratic system of elections. No big deal. So I think everyone who cares about this unique an anachronistic brand of citizen democracy really had to feel for Iowans, in part because they take it so seriously. They take their civic responsibility so seriously, and to have such a screw-up and to, to have the caucuses turn into such a debacle, you knew that this was probably the most serious threat that Iowa has ever faced to the future of the caucuses. It's the fairy tale versus reality, and this is reality. Um, the reality is that our nation's changed so much. I mean, we are facing as a nation, we're confronting systemic racism across our institutions. And, you know, our electoral process is going to be examined. So, Charlie, we needed someone to be the the Iowa caucus romantic for this episode. Uh, but, but it turns out you don't need to get someone to be the Iowa caucus romantic when you've got someone with an Iowa caucus romantic tattoo. Uh, or basically, or it's on a ray gun t-shirt that you own or something like that. <laughs> so briefly, like, tell me about the role that the Iowa caucus traditionally plays. Well, uh, the Iowa caucus is, uh, you know, mythic in, in some ways and has been ever since, uh, it gave a springboard to, uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter from Georgia. I hope to be your next president. It plays a kind of winnowing role in the same way that uh, New Hampshire does. It's not always guaranteed to produce uh, the winner, but it is a unique institution that uh, people pay really close attention to, all the candidates, or most of the candidates at least. The caucuses allow this intimacy with all these candidates that you don't get anywhere else in the country. Then The caucus system itself really kind of guarantees that that 
intimacy in that conversation happens. Everywhere else, you're just watching these ads on television, right? Um, the candidates are all people who are on, you know, on, on the stage and you're far away. But in Iowa... Put it this way, what if you went to California? Nobody would ever meet voters. It would be all radio and TV ads or, or internet ads. Candidates would never actually meet real people, but they're forced to do that in a small state like Iowa. And then the same is true in New Hampshire, but in Iowa, they're forced to walk down streets and go to coffee shops and hit small towns and, and hit all these civic gatherings. And I think uh, that is something that is really great for our system. I think it's great for our leaders to be forced to interact in that kind of way. To win in a caucus, you need to win people over. So all these big names are going into having dinner with families are, you know, and they're all competing with each other. Like, oh, they had dinner with my whole family. Oh, they only, oh, she only had you know, Elizabeth Warren only had coffee with me and my husband. Um, and, and it's insane, the stories they're telling you. I mean, they're, you know, some of them have had, you remember the huge sprawling field once upon a time in 2020, every single, some, you know, major Democrats in Iowa had all of these people in their living rooms. It rewards passion and organization. And I think that we want to have an element of that in our politics. We want to have long shot candidates or candidates who don't appear on the radar, who somehow build up a, an enormous reserve of, of goodwill at the grassroots level. We want candidates like that to, to compete. You know, the biggest role that they probably played in the modern era in, in, in politics is Barack Obama. You know, there's something happening in Iowa. It wore out my voice talking to him. Iowans are very proud of Barack Obama. We picked him. No one knew who he was. You know, he wasn't a big deal. Well, he was right. a big deal. He, he was not the political star yet that he later became. Um, he was on the rise. But, you know, Hillary Clinton was, you know, presumably the front runner. Right, right. And they chose Obama. And that sort of set set the trajectory of the, of the race in, in 2008. Right. And, and I saw this amazing number uh, this year, Scott, from a study that said that during the 2008 presidential campaign and two months before the 2008 Iowa caucuses, roughly two thirds of Iowa voters had personally met at least one candidate. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. Two thirds of the state had met a candidate. And uh, I don't think that would have happened otherwise unless they had the caucuses, unless Iowa had its kind of uh, privileged status there. And if you're in California, and again, you know, no disrespect intended to California or even, you know, my home state, the, you know, the, the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Scott, which I know you're, uh, you, you wish very much that you were born in. Uh, <laughs> even in a state like that, you don't get to meet presidential candidates. We rarely yeah. meet them. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, well, I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, 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 lo I love it. The, uh, <laughs> you, th you threw me there, though. I <laughs> And, and, and those arguments have held great sway for a long time, combined with the unified bipartisan first principles of the, the Iowa political parties and, and the New Hampshire political parties, that, which is that whatever else we may uh, disagree on, we are a unified front for keeping our states in this privileged position in the presidential nominating process. And yet... Now we're looking at the aftermath of an election where the president of the United States finished fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire, and then obviously not only went on to win his party's nomination, but won, won the whole election. And that's put both of these states under enormous pressure, but probably most especially Iowa because of the, the circumstances of the caucus with the technical difficulties and the vote counting problems a year ago. 
Yeah, although I don't think that's the biggest problem confronting them right now. I mean, candidates sometime will bomb in Iowa, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> the biggest threat to Iowa, and this is true of New Hampshire, really is the question of demographics. Sure. Every person in the 2020 field wanted to be Barack Obama in that sense. They thought, you know, if Iowa can make me, I'm set. They will pick me up from the crowd. Um, and that's why Iowa is so important, particularly in 2020, when you did have a very crowded field. And lots of huge names, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders and Warren and, and Biden and, and Amy Klobuchar, they were all looking for the same thing, which was Iowa, give me legitimacy. Yeah, there's like the, there's the legitimacy aspect. There's the, the kind of winnowing the field aspect. There's the elevation. There's that intimacy you talked about. And yet, you know, at the, at the same time, it kind of feels it feels like to to some degree that this is like the the Instagram version of the Iowa caucus. It's like, oh, look how look how great this is. Look at all these great things it does. And then there, you know, like people post about how great their lives are, especially this year on Instagram. Whatever. And then there's the reality. Then and what's you, like the messy reality? Then you peel of back the, the onion, at this right? Point? And that is what I would argue was what <laughs> the app, that faulty app that contributed to faulty counting and issues reporting the results. The app actually just kind of held up a mirror to how the caucus system works, and people didn't like it. Right. Well, the, the reality is the person who Iowans pick often does not end up <laughs> being a Barack Obama. And in this case, this reality in 2020, what you had was a fourth place finish for Joe Biden. And what the app ended up doing, you know, when you peeled back the onion of the app, it wasn't just that flopped. It was that it exposed the caucus process. People right. were much more familiar than like, what is really going on? Wait, how do you count this stuff? And who are these people anyway? Wait, they're all white. But, you know, it, there was just like much more of a microscope of what was happening and how it was happening and who these people were. And, you know, I think at that point, I was, was already starting to... Um, become known as, you know, are they having an outsized role in this in the presidential election? And should they? I mean, look at our country. Does it represent our country? And the answer was no. It is a largely white state. I mean, there's just no denying it. And and the Democratic Party in and I was very progressive. So what you ended up having is Joe Biden finishing fourth, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders so close, but Buttigieg winning. Um, and Elizabeth Warren in third, and the app and on all the mayhem of that night ended up obscuring the win. Um, it, what the the lift, the elevation you were talking about earlier, did not happen um, because of all that mayhem. But we also learned was Iowa was very wrong. They were very wrong. What we would later learn, what we know now, of course, he's in the White House, but. Fourth place for Joe Biden, what we saw later in more diverse states was a very different story to the point that this entire field is completely flipped. And there's also this interesting phenomenon going on where the the Iowa Democratic Party has typically been fairly progressive, but the state itself is skewing more Republican. Who is defending Iowa? Iowa is a state that has two Republican senators, a Republican governor. Donald Trump won there again. Uh, there's very little reason for the Democratic Party to remain wedded to the idea of Iowa taking the lead there. Yeah, so what I'm wondering now is, you know, given all this, like, wh where does this all go from here? I mean, there's a lot of arguments. And so you know, already we're seeing Democrats in Nevada making a play to bump 
Iowa and New Hampshire from their early spots in the in future presidential nominating calendars. Right. Uh, I mean, I think the end is near for for their ownership of the uh, early uh, dates, uh, whether it's in twenty twenty four or twenty eight or whenever. It's 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 destined not to last for a lot of different reasons. And I think eroding their position is not just the debacle surrounding this year's caucus and not just the demography question. It's also Iowa has become a much more Republican state. So it's going to have less purchase on the Democratic imagination. And uh, I think part of the problem that Iowa will have is also measuring up against Nevada, which is uh, more diverse and also has the catalytic support of former Senator Harry Reid, who may not be the Senate majority leader anymore, but he's still a power broker in Nevada and a power broker within the party. And I think he has a very persuasive argument to make, and they're making it in Nevada. So what what does this look like behind the scenes? I mean, obviously, you know, there, there have been discussions within kind of the Nevada Democratic Party to switch from caucus to primary. But what's the next step? You know, who is Harry Reid talking to and what are, what are he and others trying to do to force their way further forward in the calendar. And of course, Reed was instrumental in Nevada becoming one of those first four states in the first place, uh, what, 12, 13 years ago. And now, now he wants to push them forward again. But, but how does that work? Well, it'll work through the, the national party. That'll move through the, the Democratic National Committee. It's not something that's going to happen just because Nevada passes a bill. I mean, states pass bills all the time because every state wants to be first. And every state thinks they deserve to be first, whether it's Florida or California. And it's not just that going first sounds good. There's all this stuff that goes along with it. You get the most attention from the candidates because they want that early boost of momentum. Uh, they're going to be showing up at every state and county rubber chicken dinner to to raise money for the, what one two three years before the thing actually happens right so that they can build those local connections there's also you know this waterfall effect on the the hotel and tourism industries in the state you got all these people coming in from the media and political folks to i don't know just you know rubberneckers who want to see the thing going on you know, every year, it seems like there's one state or another that the legislature passes a bill saying they, they are going to be first in the next presidential election. And in the end, New Hampshire or Iowa figure out a way to wriggle around that by passing their own leg- – waiting till the end and changing their date or relying on the party to keep the party rules in place because as it stands now, party rules penalize anyone who jumps the order – by party rules, the early states are Nevada, South Carolina, Iowa, and, and New Hampshire. And as soon as the party changes the rules, then Iowa is dead. And, and I think that process will begin, or at least the discussion over what the uh, first four states should look like will begin over the next couple of years. And there are less and less defenders of Iowa, uh, Iowa's prerogatives and more and more Democrats who are publicly willing to question the role that Iowa plays at the front of the calendar. And then, you know, the, you just mentioned South Carolina is also in the mix here, too, right? This is the state that kind of more than any other can claim that they're responsible for or where Democrats can claim they're responsible for Joe Biden's presidency. And you've got a South Carolinian um, atop the DNC now and Jamie Harrison and uh, in the number three slot in the House and Jim Clyburn, who who has Biden's ear on any number of things after that, that kind of famous endorsement in February. Right. And, he, and here again, you get to the demography question, which is uh, now that African-Americans are ascendant within the Democratic Party, and by ascendant, I mean are finally stepping into or, or being able to 
uh, exercise the muscle they have inside the party and be recognized for uh, the critical role that they play within the Democratic Party, uh, you're beginning to see that acknowledged. And I think one important way to acknowledge it is to um, elevate the role of South Carolina, where a far greater degree of the, the electorate is African-American than, than in, in Iowa and New Hampshire, certainly. I think behind the scenes, um, the White House is going to be playing a big role. And right now, they have no no love loss for, for Iowa or, or New Hampshire. Um, and, you know, even they, they had to play a really tricky role during the primary because they, on the one hand, had to keep saying, well, you know, Iowa's not really representative of the country. Don't, you know, we might not do well there, but that's okay. Look at South Carolina. But you can't really diss Iowa while you're running in Iowa, right? So, um they they were it was it was very tricky um for that but i you know it'll be really interesting to see if there is a fight between nevada and south carolina here cuz you have two titans um you know political titans both of whom are are close to biden um and the biden world sort of you know pointing to like all the reasons they think their state should be first there are other arguments for moving it away from iowa too vote counting issues expose the system itself. It's Byzantine. And it feels out of step with the popular vote conception of how we conduct politics in this country. I think of it like, you know, what if you put the electoral college system in a blender and then tried to kind of Frankenstein it back together? Right. It is so bizarre. And it it is, um, you know, you have a bunch of people who are in a room and for those who've never been to a caucus and, and you have different representatives from for each candidate coming and making a pitch. And then you start whittling down these groups and, you know, you have to have there's all these rules um, for getting viability and getting to the next round and so forth. But then you can argue everything to death. And when you start having these these numbers and wait, did that really have viability? And that person, was it in that group or that group? It just became more and more apparent that the electoral system was just not what it used to be and, and what what people are demanding now, which was much more transparency. Once they it was transparent and people actually saw what was going on, they were horrified. <laughs> they don't want it anymore. And the Democratic Party in Iowa got a lot of blame. And they did mishandle a lot of stuff in 2020. But in a way, what they were really paying the price for was a system that had been in place for decades and was being reexamined in new light. And all of a sudden, stuff that used to seem charming seemed a little nuts. You know, they're they're turning stuff in, like, with, with handwriting and things scratched out. And, well, all of that always happened. It's just now you're actually seeing it. And people didn't like it once they actually saw it. I mean, not nationally anyway. And I think that's that that's part of it. You know, we, we want a clear cut system where we can, you know, count votes. It's it's, you know, one person, one vote. A system that is uniform across states. Everyone knows how it works. If there is a recount, there's a recount. Of course, the bad part of that is what we started with at the beginning, which is, are you taking all that intimacy away again? The end of this system, if and when it happens, would be would be a huge change. It would it would be. I mean, think about it for 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 you and I. It would be 
uh, it would change the only system we've ever really known for, for most of our lives. And uh, that is a system with Iowa and New Hampshire at the front of the line and Iowa playing uh, the most prominent role. And, and to alter that really shakes the foundations of the political world. We're confronting systemic racism across our institutions um, and our electoral process is is being going to be examined, I mean, just as our police departments are and our criminal justice system as a whole. So to have this process in place, I think, is more and more politicians are just – and, you know, the Democratic National Committee, there, there is just going to be so much pressure to move it away from this. And, you know, because of all of those reasons, why sure. are we having a bunch of white people decide – you know, the trajectory of our nation, who's in the White House, essentially. And it's a powerful argument. And I think we are in a moment in the country where we're ready for some change. And I say that, I say that it's, I love Iowa. Let's be clear, Nerdcasters, we're not trying to dunk too hard on Iowa right now. We're political journalists. We will always be attached to rituals, even if they're weird. I have a special place in my heart for it. I know the people there. I spend a ton of time there. They're wonderful people. They take the process very seriously. If you go to any diner, the person serving your food subscribes to The Economist and will start talking to you. Where are you from? And, and, and knows every single candidate who's running, not just that, who their campaign manager is, how much money they have. I mean, it's, it's to that, point, that level. Um, so they do take it seriously. Um, but the country's changing and it's changing fast. Actually, now that I think about it, Iowa maybe actually was kind of an accurate predictor for the rest of 2020. Not so much for who would be in the White House, but for exposing weaknesses in the political system. Because when you think about it, uh, <laughs> Iowa being first in the nation, um, they were they were the first to have a calamitous um, election. And that's what we ended up seeing over and over again. And maybe there was um, a, a little bit of, you know, Iowa, Iowa telling the rest of the world, hey, 2020 is going to be really rough. And um, we didn't just see that in, in all the local primaries and, and then what was to come in the general election, but we saw it across our institutions, um, you know, including in our police departments um, and, you know, protests and counter protests and all the, the ugliness um, that was under, you know, lying underneath all of that from George Floyd on. And um, yeah, so in some ways, Iowa was definitely first in the nation. Well, it's been a, a fun stroll down memory lane and a deep, deep dive into the great state of Iowa. Thanks for being here, Natasha. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be back. All right, that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. This week, Politico is launching Recovery Lab, a new reported series designed to highlight the smartest ideas emerging across the country for combating the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the shocks it has sent through our economy and society from massive job losses to school closures to the growing digital divide. Inspired by the idea that the states are 50 laboratories of democracy and policy, each edition of Recovery Lab will be a deep dive into a challenge posed by the pandemic. Go to politico.com and search for Recovery Lab. We'll talk to you again next week.